This is In Hindsight, Half a Century of Research Discoveries in Canadian History, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. Great pleasure today to be looking at episode 17 on Duncan Campbell Scott. And he was the long-serving Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs or Deputy Superintendent General to use his official title and very much uh, associated with Canadian Indian policy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In fact, of all the Deputy Superintendents of Indian Affairs, he is without any doubt, the most most famous. <laughs> and he is our subject today. Now, that's a huge topic. There's very good liter- background literature on Duncan Campbell Scott. Uh, my particular approach, however, in this episode will be to look at an address he gave at Victoria University in the University of Toronto, in Victoria College, in the chapel at Victoria College. And it was the evening... And mid-April, 1925, evening of April 22nd, Duncan Campbell Scott, in his role as a poet, was invited to address a large Toronto audience at the Victoria Chapel and on poetry. In fact, this evening was the first full-scale reading of his poetry. The recital was held in the Methodist College's chapel, And the Methodist College was on the verge of an exciting development. It was soon to merge with the Presbyterians, most of them, and the Congregationalists. And two months, about two months later, after this talk, the United Church of Canada was formed. So a big moment for the church. But that's not anything to do with Duncan Campbell Scott's address. His address was on poetry. Now, some of the setting here is important. Um, the uh, Victoria College had been at Coburg. We've mentioned that in previous episode, and it had moved to the University of Toronto in the early 1890s. And the old, the first building, magnificent building, it just is still there, still standing, and it's called today Old Vic. Now, chapels in Old Vic. So, just to begin, let's walk into the building, up the stairways, up the stairway, past. The quotation, which is over the archway, a quotation Edgerton Ryerson, Victoria's first president, had chosen. He chose this as a, as his text in a Victoria College convocation in Coburg years before. And that quote is the promise of Christ to his disciples. That quote is over the doorway. And it reads, you can read it today, the truth shall make you free. Now there's a, I want to begin with some atmosphere. Nathaniel Burwash, a future president himself, heard Ryerson at that convocation. And later, after the university had, or Victoria University had moved to the new campus, he had the words placed above the doorway of what's now known as Old Vic. So, association with an earlier episode, Edgerton Ryerson. 
Now, there also was another item we should look at. It had been put up uh, two years before, actually, and it was a plaque. It's right by the entrance door, erected to the memory of the students of this college who gave their lives in the Great War, 1914 to 1918. And it's right as you enter on the side to the right. And number three, Fred Albright. Subject of a previous episode. Now, a little bit of atmosphere before we enter the chapel. What was Toronto like then? Well, Toronto was small by today's standards. It had about half a million people. Most of the inhabitants were of British background. The multicultural element was there, hardly, very, but not really pronounced. As regards North American Indians or First Nations, there were hardly any in the city at that time. So I doubt if there's any in the audience. Who knows? In 1921, the census stated that there were, in a, a city of half a million, 183 people with North American Indian, quote, racial uh, racial background in the city. It, it seems, it, it just, it's tiny, tiny minority. And uh, that 183 had grown to 284 by the 1931 census. So in short, there was an insignificant indigenous population, at least self-declared indigenous population in Toronto at this time. A little more atmosphere, then we'll get into the topic. Cars, they were the big story. Cars were coming in strongly. There were still horses, however. And Toronto still, in April 1925, it did not yet have its first traffic light. That only came in August at the the intersection of Bloor and Young. A little bit more atmosphere. What about women? Well, women had made great advances. The provincial franchise had come in 1919, the federal vote in 1921, and also in 1921, women could run for office. Well, the temper of the new era was announced by Agnes McPhail. She was the first woman woman elected. Um, she was a, from a farm in Gray County, Ontario, and very determined in her fight for women's rights, she was elected first female MP in Ottawa. That's the same in 1921. So all this is happening. This is the background. Agnes McPhail, her famous quote was, when asked, a woman's place, where was that? Agnes McPhail replied, any place she wants it. So there's a bit of atmosphere. Now we're going to come to the moment. Now, Duncan Campbell Scott, this was nothing new to him, this Methodist college, this Methodist atmosphere, not at all. He had come from a Methodist family. His father was a Methodist preacher, had been a missionary, actually, in the 1840s and 50s. He'd serviced a number of communities, uh, First Nations communities in southwestern Ontario. Then he'd gone into non-Indigenous uh, congregate, served non-Indigenous congregations in Ottawa, in Ottawa particularly, also though in eastern townships in Quebec. And so young Duncan grew up in small towns where his dad had his churches, and uh, in mainly then in the Ottawa Valley and in eastern townships. He went to a college, naturally a Methodist college, and wanted to become a doctor. 
but no, no doc of that. The family just didn't have the cash. Well, one advantage, his father was a friend of political friend of John A. Macdonald. And upon leaving the Methodist College, he Stansted College in Eastern Townships, the 17-year-old Duncan Campbell Scott obtained an interview for a federal a federal job through the contact of John A. The Prime Minister acted upon a letter from the Conservative MP in this area in the Eastern Townships in Quebec. The MP had written to Sir John saying, you desire to be reminded after the session of your intent and promise to provide a good permanent situation for Duncan Campbell Scott, son of your clerical and political friend and admirer, Reverend William Scott. Well, he got the interview and he got a job. The Prime Minister simply requested the young applicant to submit a specimen of his handwriting. It being found acceptable, Duncan obtained a clerk's position. It was that simple in 1879. Duncan Campbell Scott thrived in the Department of Indian Affairs. It was his, oh boy, it was his idea of good management, his preferred style. It was a top-down operation firmly under the control of the Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs, the office to which he aspired to and would eventually obtain. About late 1880s, we're talking about maybe about 500 people for the whole entire country. And large, when he enters, it's clerks, clerks' handwriting and all, but the introduction of typewriters changed that. This was his job, and he moved up quickly. Oh, I should point out his mother. His mother was of Scottish background, and actually her parents had speaking, spoken Gaelic. His uh, Duncan Campbell Scott's father, his uh, his first wife had died, and the second uh, Duncan is the issue of the uh, he's a child of the second marriage, and uh, she was very supportive. Uh, but we don't know much about his childhood. I can't develop that more. Well, let's move along now, more towards this evening that we're so interested in. Duncan was determined to implement the policy of assimilation. Well, this was common. This was the this was the received wisdom that the First Nations had to be brought into the larger society, made part of the dominant society. And Duncan Campbell Scott, faithful employee, did his best to implement that. As a, and of course, at first he's, he's very insignificant, but then he's moving up the ladder because he's competent, he's intelligent, he's efficient. He's an excellent accountant. Can keep expenses down. That's what they want. One must remember, again, more context. Government is very small at this point, extremely small. And every dollar counts. They're coming, revenues are mainly coming through customs duties. There's no income tax, of course, to the First World War. There's little money. And so Duncan's approach is, is appreciated, and he's good. With the people in the department, there were hardly any, there were a handful of First Nations people, very, very few. And there were, of course, visitors and uh, people would, First Nations people would visit to Ottawa. Well, Duncan Campbell Scott from the early days, he starts off with the um, accounting side after being a simple clerk. He, his, his policy was he, he kept his distance from the First Nations and gave a cool reception to the delegations that visited him in Ottawa. His real refuge was his three-story brick house. 
at 108 Lisker Avenue, an easy walk to his workplace in Parliament Hill. This was his cherished sanctuary, full of books and music. And this was his passion. His office was, that was what, nine, well, what, to use that phrase, it was just nine to five sort of thing. He didn't bring it home with him. And his other life was that of culture and the arts. And that's what he'd been asked to speak at, about in his poetry, at, at, at the Victoria College, at, at, in the chapel that evening. Duncan Campbell Scott very early obtained a great reputation for his interest in the arts in Ottawa and elsewhere, throughout Canada. He was elected a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada in 1899, very young age. He became the president in 1921. The following year, the University of Toronto awarded the accomplished poet, short story writer, and essayist, who had never attended university, an honorary doctorate. So he had he had he was very highly regarded, and was that's what the public saw. They saw the culture gentleman, a man of letters, very, very knowledgeable of music, played an instrument himself. That's what they saw. This private life was not 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 in public view at all. Well, a little bit more, then we'll move towards that evening again. Duncan Campbell Scott married Bill Botsford, a professional violinist from Boston. Wow, was she a contrast with her husband? She occupied a prominent social role in Ottawa, including playing playing the violin at the Ottawa Women's Morning Music Club. The local papers reported on her tea and euchre parties. This well-dressed Ottawa socialite contrasted so with her reserved, bookish husband, who wore old-fashioned, small-lens spectacles and conservative clothes. In terms of their social life, Bill and Duncan had a different set of preferences. Bell loved evening parties. Duncan did not. <laughs> it was simple as that. It was quite different. Well, that being said, a horrifying personal crisis united them in 1907. Horrible. In their marriage's 13th year, they lost their only child, their 11th-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, who died of scarlet fever while away in boarding school in France. This this was absolute catastrophic. Duncan is moving up in the department, uh, but this personal tragedy was it, it never left him. And and the in, in the inner man, which we very hard to get into him. He's he's very well. It's a, it's a hard hard task to probe into his inner thoughts. But this definitely was a, a, an understandably a horrible horrible development. Scott always kept several of his daughter's toys. And he kept them on the hearth of their music room. Now, moving towards First Nations affairs. What were Duncan Campbell Scott's inner thoughts of the First Nations? Now, the poetry of which he would read several several of his best poems that evening at Victoria College, his poetry shows some influence of social Darwinism. Now, that is... Uh, well, social Darwinism, a pseudo-scientific way of thinking. It has no scientific validity at all, but it was very um, accepted at the turn of the century, the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It might well, another word, biological racism might be what it's called. It is a distorted application of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution in the animal kingdom to the human world. 
Uh, even so, the, the theory dominated into the early decades of the 20th century. The popular and purportedly scientific doctrine listed societies in a hierarchical order, hierarchical order of inferior and superior races. And what evidence is this exists of Duncan Campbell Scott subscribing heavily, though, to this inferior and superior races approach? Well, it must be said that there is suggestion, but very, very light that he uh, endorsed this superior and inferior race interpretation. And a couple of his great, one of the great scholars of Scott um, has done Stan Dragland. Dragland has done an account, but, and he founds actually um, the hierarchical ranking, ranking of the civilized over the primitive. There are only three references like that in his, in his writing. Um, he did not use, except for those three exceptions, the phrase superior race. And it, Canadian literature specialist, Laura Groening, argues that Scott was not a racist. He urged, af, after all, interracial marriage. He was in favor of it, and he urged, encouraged voting rights. And all of this at a period in history when the most obvious social alternative was provided by the United States, which relegated their African-American population to a system of racial segregation. So, Laurie Greening, it's just a redressment here. It, it, uh, by the, our terms today, yes, this is, well, I think you, racist perhaps could be applied. But in the terms, and one must try and see it in the age, the eyes of the age, um, he, he really, his belief, it was, I would say, in his own period, it was, would, would not be uh, quotation marks of racist. He argued, and this is his approach, the First Nations were capable of assimilation. And this is the goal he supported. They must assimilate into the dominant society, but they were capable of doing so, which is more said than what many, many Canadians at the turn of the century believed about um, other groups. The First Nations could be brought in. And so that that is his, his approach. Scott's dream was this, and I've got a quote. This this is the best. It's in his own words. So that's, let's go with that. And I'll, I'll read it uh, slowly. Um, this is what he dreamed towards. And this is 1919. Now, at this point, I should tell you, he's become chief accountant. He's been put in charge of Indian education just before World War One, And then he gets, just before World War One, 1913, he gets the big job, the one that he's aspired to. Deputy Superintendent General of Indian Affairs, he's in charge. He's deputy minister. And since the cabinet, the minister responsible, the minister of the interior, has little interest, all of them took little interest in it, he's left pretty well do everything himself, which is just the way he likes it. So here's his dream, which he now has the power to implement. He looked forward to when, quote, all the quaint old customs, the weird and picturesque ceremonies, and the sun dance and the potlatch, and even the musical and poetic native languages shall be as obsolete as the buffalo and the tomahawk, and the last teepee of the northern wilds will give place to a model farmhouse. There he is. This and this is nothing. This is nothing new. This is the old standard policy, the 19th century policy, unimaginably continued on, without any serious consideration, into the 20th century. 
Now, I mentioned this before. Scott, because of his competence, had been moving up. Competence in money was a big factor. And a very, very important event was Treaty 9. Treaty 9, that we have the numbered treaties in the plains, treaties 1 to 8. Eight, one to seven, then there's a treaty eight, and then treaty nine is Northern Ontario. And it was proposed in 1905. And Scott was chosen as one of the federal commissioners, um, several, uh, two federal commissioners and three Ontario commissioners. And they would uh, lay the groundwork, contact, consult, supposedly, quotation marks, the First Nations, and um, uh, arrange for treaty seven, uh, treaty nine, my apologies. Uh, the Treaty 9 Commission made two summer expeditions across northern Ontario, the first in 1905, the second the following year. Now, this is, uh, of course, very contemporary, This, this uh, Treaty 9, and uh, total misunderstanding of what, what really was going on. And the words of uh, James Morrison, legal and historical researcher, he studied Treaty 9, and his verdict is, his opinion is, the First Nations do not seem to have been told that they were giving up all of their own rights to their lands, except for certain small reserves, nor that they would be agreeing to be good subjects of His Majesty and were accepting government regulation of their traditional economy. In short, they had they believed they were going to be given help. Instead, it was considered they'd given up all their rights to the land except for small reserves. And this Treaty 9 is no small small item. There's no consideration in Treaty 9 to helping the Indians of the First Nations share in the profits of the development of Northern Ontario's mineral, hydro, and, and timber resources. And this is a red-hot issue today. And this is a huge area. Together with the area added by the subsequent Treaty Adhesions in 1929-30, Treaty 9 covers approximately two-thirds of the province of Ontario. Well, misunderstanding, understatement, a thousandfold. Now, Duncan Campbell Scott was also involved with First Nations education. And this, of course, he, he knew. I mean, it, 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 it just, it's chilling when you, when you read this line, which is, baldly stated and it's in writing uh, he knew when he was in charge of Indian education, superintendent of Indian education 50% of the children who pass through these schools do not live to benefit from the education which they received therein well now here the government was it, it, it's very very small government this has to be remembered um, and it's, it's not uh, it's not believed to be the responsibility. There's not a, a concept of of, of uh, the welfare system that we we have we have enjoyed beginning from really in full scale from the 40s on. It's a different era. You're on your own, and this is the era in which Scott is running education with a small budget. Anyways, to his credit, there is an advocate, Dr. Peter Bryce, medical inspector to the Department of the Interior with added Department of Indian Affairs responsibilities, who refuses to accept Scott's passive response to this crisis. He sought to reform the residential school system from within. Remember now, he's part of his age, though. He is favoring residential schooling, but it's sinful. <laughs> that's, um, uh, that's the way Bryce would put it. It's, it, it's, it's horrible 
the lack of attention that's been given to the health in these schools. And so, uh, but that doesn't go anywhere. Uh, Scott, with the bureaucratic approach, reigns supreme. And we know from the TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the horrible situations that gets progressively worse. Well, Scott brought an enthusiasm to his job, which really, in retrospect, I mean, this is the wrong train, assimilation. But again, I'm trying to be fair to the age. This was not the opinion of the age. Assimilation was regarded by almost all non-Indigenous Canadians, with a couple of exceptions, no doubt, uh, Bryce, uh, but even Bryce is a, is a bit, uh, some, uh, somewhat of assimilationist. Uh, but the majority of the population, what my point is, it, this was regarded as a good thing. Uh, Scott goes way beyond that, though. He goes, he's so in, in, enthusiastic and, and determined to do something. He brings forward in 1920, the forced enfranchisement of selected status Indians. That is the, the Department of Indian Affairs it's a, it's, it's a little bit more complex, but basically the Department of Indian Affairs can identify who should be enfranchised because they speak English or French and they're competent with money and all, and then removed. There's Indian statuses removed. They cease to be legal Indians. They become part of the larger society. This is unilaterally opposed. This is, uh, well, that one was so, so strongly responded to the federal government did not implement it. Um, but the tightening of, of the vice of Canadian Indian policy still continued. That didn't go through in this point at this point in 1920. But authoritarian measures, other ones, marked Scott's last years as Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs. In BC, he tightens up the potlatch law uh, to have, make sure that is enforced, that uh, the, the ceremonies cannot be continued. And uh, there are other points which tighten it up and make it even more that the coercion is there to lead the first nations to give up their Indian status. It can't be forced upon them, but other pressures can be made to entice them to do so. Scott was in short, an assimilationist and went to the ultimate degree in that. Diamogenes, an important federal Anthropologist worked for the federal government. Damogenes, very renowned anthropologist. He too was an assimilationist, but had no use for Scott's uh, draconian uh, harshness. When Damogenes, just a final example, then we'll get back to that meeting, which I promised you at the beginning. Damogenes, when he wrote his monumental 400-plus page Indians of Canada master book uh, in masterpiece, well, not masterpiece, but his, his masterpiece is, it, it appeared in 1931, and when it was published by the government. Scott made sure that he was not allowed to mention treaties, the Indian Act, or residential schools, because that would lead to commentary that might reflect on policies of the Department of Indian Affairs. So that's our man. Duncan Campbell Scott, and I've tried to be fair, tried to do justice, tried to see him in the eyes of his own period. It is very difficult to do so from our perspective today and all what we know from the TRC report on the schooling and also on land issues. It's, it's very tough, but um, that that's my outlook personally and others that you have to try to see the age in the eyes 
of the period. And um, so, I'm, Duncan, <laughs> I have great difficulty doing this, but I did my best <laughs> just to try to set you in a context. Now, back to this meeting. My gosh, the meeting at the chapel. Well, throughout all of this, there was an indigenous object which was in that building and probably at the entrance to the chapel. And I want to tell you about this because it's a wonderful example uh, to take, a wonderful example to take, uh, to illustrate changing attitudes towards the First Nations by non-Indigenous Canadians. It's fantastic. This was the subject of my book, uh, Seen But Not Seen, and I'm just continuing in that vein. What was out, what was definitely in the building, the Old Vic building in which the chapel was, it's called Old Vic to this day, with the, over the entryway, the truth shall make you free, in this building was an indigenous object. This object was a meteorite, a 145 kilogram meteorite that had fallen from space and landed intact on Earth in Alberta, central Alberta, millions of years ago at Iron Creek, a tributary of the Battle River. Now, this meteorite was included in spiritual ceremonies by the Blackfoot and the Cree in what is now Alberta, and offerings were left there. For many years, the site of the meteorite was a place of worship and reverence. But in the 1860s, the Methodists removed it from that site, this pagan object, and took it to the mission. Again, this is all very much in tune with the outlook of non-Indigenous Canadians at the time. So we should, I think, hold off with our six guns firing at the Methodist missionaries. And just, uh, this is a context, in the context of the time, this was what was happening in the parts of the em- British Empire, this sort of behavior, it was just common practice. We have a good description of it. In 1870, British Army officer William Butler saw the meteorite at the mission. Here, it, here is what he wrote, and it's quite interesting. It gives a, such a good description. In the farmyard of the mission house, there lay a curious block of metal of immense weight. It was rugged, deeply indented, and polished on its utter edges of the indentations by the wear and friction of many years. Its history was a curious one. Longer than any man could say, it had lain on the summit of a hill far out on the southern prairies. It had been a medicine stone of surpassing virtue among the Indians of our vast territory. No tribe or portion of a tribe would pass in the, the vicinity without paying a visit to this medicine. That's from Butler's well-celebrated account, published in 1872, The Great Lone Land. Well, after Butler saw it, the meteorite, that's when it was shipped. It was shipped to church officials in Toronto who gave it to the museum at the Methodist Victoria College in Coburg, Ontario. And now we're finally at the spot where we began. After the construction in the early 1890s of Victoria's campus, new campus at the University of Toronto, the meteorite was moved. It was apparently placed in what is now the Old Vic building. I think almost, well, I've got 99% evidence for it at the entrance to the chapel. And I'll tell you why. Now that we get into this discovery aspect of this series, great historical research discovery. So here it is, the meteorite. How do I know that it was before the chapel? Well, I'll bring forth my evidence. Judge it as you will. In an article, Chapel Hour, in the college newspaper, Acta Victoriana, 
special number, April 1921, it's mentioned the meteorite stood guard outside the chapel to see, quote, that the sacred exercises are not disturbed by sounds of laughter. Oh, just a one-liner, but it indicates that the meteorite was there. Now, it's hard to follow the meteorite. I've got a, a citation in 1925 that's in the building. That's the same year the talk was given. But there's even better evidence that's before the chapel still. And this is from a gentleman I interviewed 30 years ago who, who gave me this evidence. And it's followed up also by further evidence. For some years to follow, the original meteorite and later a replica stood on a pedestal directly in front of the chapel, on the, which is on the second floor of the building. And we know this thanks to, I know this, from Dr. Kingsley Joblin, who graduated from Vic in 1932 and became a professor of the theology school at Victoria Emanuel College in a telephone conversation, 1993. Wow. Memory hold the door. That's 30 years ago. Reverend Joblin, Dr. Joblin, confirmed the location of the iron meteorite before the chapel. Now, here's what happens. Uh, Tongue and Campbell Scott gives that talk. And it's so here's a Methodist. Like, this is a whole background of Methodist. Here he is. And the pagan object is in front of the hall in which he's speaking, in front of the chapel, and right at the entry. Well, what happened to the meteorite? Now, that's I'm just going to take another two minutes here just to tell you how attitudes have changed. That pagan object, which was so badly recorded, certainly present, but not, I mean, I'm not coming through with 100% evidence here. I'm coming through with 99%, so there's still a little bit left there. But here's what we know. Once we get to 35, it becomes, well, it's easier. Under the terms of an agreement reached in 1935, the actual meteorite was transferred to the Royal Ontario Museum. In return, the Royal Ontario Museum, just across the street, by the way, from Victoria, provided the cast and the cast of the meteorite was put on display before the chapel, and it stood there to the 1940s. Now, I know it was there in the 30s. Uh, well, Reverend uh, Dr. Joblin tells me that, but it's also confirmed in the 1940s by David Knight, a Victoria undergraduate at the time. And I spoke with him that same month, June 1993. And further research indicates, yes, the original stone well, now it had been transferred to the Royal Ontario Museum. It stayed there in 1972, when at the request of the Alberta government, it was placed on long-term loan with the Royal Alberta Museum in Edmonton. Uh, the, pl the plaster copy was out uh, before the chapel until the 1950s. And um, that's, that's where we'll end with that. I don't, I don't know where the plaster is now, and it's not important. But the absolute, the, the important detail is the meteorite. It has now been taken back, uh, sent back to Alberta. And this is the new story. This is the big story. This is the front page story. Recent developments. On National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, September 30th, last year, 2022, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney announced at the Royal Ontario Museum that through a joint stewardship agreement, the Alberta government will cede ownership of the stone to the First Nations peoples and will return it to its historic location. The Alberta government has committed to building a prayer center and an interpretive center near Hardesty, Alberta, so visitors can learn about the stone and what it represents. Isn't that incredible? Full circle. So, Duncan Campbell Scott, interesting story, well told by others. And to that, my contribution 
is my particular interest in the location of the meteorite from its transfer from Victoria Mission, that was the name of the Methodist Mission, to Coburg, Ontario, and subsequently to the University of Toronto Compass, to the old Vic building, and of course, what an exciting story, the return of that meteorite to Alberta, and it will be the whole, all be in control of the First Nations themselves. So a complete reversal and a new age, and let's hope that that new age will continue. Thank you.